doing work in international social enterprise. He's a social entrepreneur. And he's just an all-around great guy and a punk at heart just like I am. So, episode 264, Ryan Mahaffey, CEO, Feast Over Famine, starts right now. Yeah, literally all over the map because we've got clients in like Ukraine and Tajikistan, like all over the place. Kira's parents just moved to Kazakhstan, so it's like... I don't even know anymore. And we've got a 14-month-old, right? <laughs> yeah. So is your circadian rhythm just all jacked up? Doesn't I mean, there is no circadian rhythm anymore. <laughs> it just doesn't even exist. Yeah, it's it's just like whatever. Like, yeah, it's just disaster. So it's funny. Today is actually my birthday. Dude, happy birthday. Thanks. Punk rock birthday. Let's go. <laughs> You want to go grab a PBR from the fridge? Like, get it rolling. Come on. It's it's 7.40 in the morning. I uh, Exactly my point. Go I, grab a PBR from the fridge and get your birthday going. <laughs> I am going to play golf later, uh, so I will be drinking in the AM, but I'm 39, not 19. <clears throat> but what's funny is every year on my birthday, I create a, a playlist, like a mix, and I write oh, about dude. it. Dude. Okay. And so this year... Punk rock tends to be overrepresented because I think going through what we're going through culturally and as a society, punk rock is very, very necessary right now. Yeah, totally. And so there, uh, I think you saw this on my page, but like this local band called the Maslow's, uh, is really good. They made their way into my mix this year. And then there's this other band called not tonight and the headaches. Okay. Which is a fantastic name and just hilarious to me, but I heard them on Krista makes a podcast. Have you listened to that? Mm-mm. So Krista makes lead singer of less than Jake will interview. Oh, okay. Yeah. So cute name, right? Chris DeMakes a I, podcast. No. Yeah. I thought you said crystal makes a podcast. I know. And I was and, like, who? <laughs> sure. I don't know. Maybe it's some, you're like, yeah, who's Krista. Right. Um, and by the way, that's the way I say it. And my wife, uh, is like, it sounds like you're saying Krista makes a podcast. I go, yeah, I know. Like I can't help it. I hear it in my brain. There's nothing I can do about it. Anyway, he interviews uh, like all these musicians. He asks them to pick a song and talk about the development and the production of that song. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so he's had like Ryan Key from Yellow Card and like Tim McElrath from Rise Against and uh, like Bill Stevenson from The Descendants and stuff. Dude, I'm adding this to my... Uh, you need to. It's great. Oh, he just started it too. Oh, Chris number two from Anti-Flag. Mm-hmm. Yellow Card. Okay. All right. Yeah, the, see you. the first one with uh, John Feldman oh, from Goldfinger is really good. He did one with Bayside. Mm-hmm. Dude, Bayside's one of my guilty pleasures. It's just perfect. <laughs> it's it's not really my jam, but oh, uh, dude, I love I love Bayside. I, well, and the people who love Bayside like love Bayside. I mean, Bayside was a little out of your era, right? You're like Bayside. Well, you say my era, like I'm like turning sixty nine. No, uh, I'm saying like a <laughs> nine-year difference in the punk music world in the 90s and 2000s. Oh, no, that's is, true. Is a big difference. That's more what I mean. No, and no. you're old. And you're old. So, no, I'm <laughs> also that. <laughs> so this is Ryan Mahaffey from Feast Over Famine, who is uh, busting my chops at the moment. <laughs> and also someone I was introduced to. Got to give a quick shout to Will Matthews. Who, Are you starting the episode, dude? Uh, he, oh, we've been going already. Oh, uh, really? Oh, yeah. No, this is... It this... doesn't show that we're recording. Yeah, I know, uh, because I'm recording on a Zoom recorder. I'm sorry. And then I messed it all up. Oh, a big shout to Will Matthews, who introduced both of us and is one of my favorite people. That dude's just an absolute ray of sunshine. Will is like, you got to meet this guy, Ryan. We started talking, and I'm like, wow. Uh, as soon as we started talking, I felt like I'd known you for years, which was crazy. Yeah, dude. My wife yelled at me for spending a work call on a Friday for an hour and a half, not talking about work, not helping <laughs> with the kids, and not knowing what the heck I was talking to you about and why. <laughs> well, hopefully when this episode goes live, she'll be like, okay, hopefully this was worth it. You think she'll get there? Uh, she's already there. She's great. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, I know how it goes with the kids, man, because like it's relentless. They never stop. It, it never, ever stops. You're always on. It's so funny. Like, we started talking, and yeah, my intention was to, like, I think we were going to talk about podcasting. I can't remember the exact reason we connected. Do you? Yeah, I think it was po- kind of podcasting. You okay. had done an episode with someone that Will thought was kind of up our alley, and he's like, oh, you guys should talk. 
Yeah. And then we talked. Yeah, I remember you're like, okay, why why wouldn't Will tell me that he talked to the guitarist from Strung Out and not right. this other person? Like, because you go, like, Will knows I'm into punk. He knows John's into punk. Will's brother, I think, was in a band called Shudder to Think. Really? Yeah. Yeah, you didn't I know that? See, I want to see Will Matthews in a punk band. So do I, um, with that sexy baritone of his. <laughs> but, yeah, dude, we ended up talking music, and it was so funny because, like, just a couple of old punks, old in my case, not quite as old in your case, but in terms of like where punk typically grabs people, you know, we're, we're kind of out of that demographic just a little bit. Yeah. But it really informs everything we do. So like I'm interested in kind of your journey, first of all. And then secondly, like what brought you to Feast Over Famine? Because that, that is your baby. That is something you created from the ground up, total DIY style, right? Yeah, totally. Yep. So hit me with it. Uh, what what brought you to this moment? Yeah, so I can give you the short version, and uh, then you can ask whatever parts of it you want along the journey. So short version from Chicago area originally, went to school in Milwaukee. Great punk scene in Chicago, by the way. Yeah, great punk scene in Chicago. That's kind of Milwaukee, but not... It's hard when they're so close together, because like my entire family's from Chicago, too. So like right. I, I know that area, so, you know... When you start getting up towards like Gurney, you're close to the Wisconsin border and stuff. And if you're a band, you're like, yeah, we could hit Chicago and Milwaukee. But I think people are going to be traveling between those cities anyway. Yeah. Like in college, like I hit a point junior, senior year was like every other, like I think the Menzingers were recording one of their records in Chicago and they were doing a show, some like underground bar show every weekend. And we were, we were back for Chicago like once a week at that point. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is crazy. So yeah, so I went to school in Milwaukee, uh, you know, worked for a handful of different companies, uh, Milwaukee Bucks, Northwestern Mutual, uh, Harley Davidson, uh, digital marketing, um, web design agency, and then was with Red Bull for a while. And the, the funny thing going on the punk rock route was like Red Bull's persona is to be anti-authoritarian. Like, <laughs> like they, yeah. you go through training and they have this little image of Mr. Red Bull and it's what we're supposed to embody. And it's like, uh, goes against the status quo, anti-authoritarian, like pursues excellence and everything, which you start to see in Red Bull, how they do things. Like, Dude, this is, this is what I live every day. This is great. And, um, so, so left that in 2015, was going to go do international. Did they live that? I mean, was that true of the brand? Like, or, or was it more corporate than it, it appears at first blush? You're trying to get me into trouble here. No, I'm not. Um, the re- <laughs> no, the, you're fine. The, the reason I ask too is because I worked for an energy drink for two ill-fated months. And Red Bull, by far and away, all the reps I came across, because sometimes, you know, you'd be out in stores doing stuff and you'd yeah, run yeah. into other companies. Yep. Red Bull always had their stuff most together compared to everyone else. Like, you'd meet guys from Monster, Rockstar, you know, yep. there's like a zillion energy drinks out there. Like, what was that one that UFC used to do? Like, Zenergy or whatever. But <laughs> the Red Bull reps always were, were the most kind of on top of things. So that's yeah, why I'd I say that, that that's true. Yeah. I'd say that Red Bull tries to bring like a higher level of professionalism than anybody else in the beverage or marketing industry. And, and part of it, the, what makes you crazy there sometimes is the pursuit of excellence and perfection on everything from, Hey, this PowerPoint font you did doesn't match <laughs> perfectly. Yeah. But if you run an organization and you run a team that that goes to that level, you're going to get results. So I think it was that way. And, but it was also kind of a, a culture of like, ask, ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Oh, you that's, know? that's good. Like if, if that actually exists, like for real, because a lot of companies will say, better to beg forgiveness than ask permission. Yeah. And then as soon no, as you do think, that, you're, you're like, you're up a Creek, you know, I mean, we're sent, we're dropping people out of space and having athletes that are like, you know, doing backflips and all this crazy, like you're constantly pushing the limits and that was the goal. And if you're going to push the limits constantly in something, you're going to make mistakes and fail and, and it's, it's risky. Right. 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 Like that's the idea of extreme sports, take massive risks. You're probably going to break something once a year and but it's worth it you know and i think they i think they embodied that well overall did you do any like extreme sports or did you grow up in that culture yeah so that's like that's kind of how red bull red bull found me through my twitter account oh, in get college out. and that's how i and not how i got the job but how i got connected in to get the job so i started so my dad was like total awesome hippie long haired bandana like riding his Harley just awesome you know and that's kind of that's right. kind of how my punk story starts a little bit but he like he would take me to state parks growing up and 
like I learned how to ride a two wheel bike on my third birthday. And he was like, okay, you know, I don't want you to get hit by a car growing up. So let's go on these state park hiking trails that say no bikes. He had this 10 speed bike. He called it Suey suicide. Cause he felt like he was gonna, so he called his bike Suey. It was like this 10 speed uh, road bike that was just falling apart. And I'm on my little bike and we just go ride all these hiking trails and get ourselves into trouble. And so he created a monster <laughs> because I started racing BMX, like pedal bikes, dirt tracks when I was five and raced till I was 19. And now I race mountain bikes here in Colorado, like downhill and enduro. And, you know, so if I have a full face helmet on and there's a chance yeah. of me being several feet in the air, like I'm happy. Like I'm totally in the zone. Dude, downhill, like mountain biking is some of the craziest like stuff I've ever seen. And if you've ever tried it and you're like, when you start out, you're not going that fast. But it's terrifying because you're going down like ski slopes. Yeah. And no, it's wild, man. So, okay, you started dirt tracks, pedal dirt tracks. D- uh, have you seen the movie Rad? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's like my favorite movie. Uh, yeah, like Joe Kid on a Stingray, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, like I started a website called the Crew Jones Society. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'll have to check that out. It no longer that's exists. Amazing. It's no longer online, but yeah, that so I ran that from 2008 to like 2012, I think. Okay. Uh, that was that was one of my first kind of solo endeavors. So, yeah, you're I mean, you're speaking my language here. So, I I can see where you got into that. I kind of got into my energy drink, which I'll talk about off mic. I never talk about them like on mic, like in public. I just prefer not to because that was not my favorite experience. Yeah. But uh <laughs> I kind of got into that and it was exhausting because we were kind of lower tier. So we were getting like every two bit cage fighter, every mm-hmm. like crappy bull rider, every, you know, like rock hopping Dude, those, mountain bike. All those energy drinks, they're just kind of a B rate version of Red Bull. And I hate, and I hate to say that I'm not, and I don't work there anymore. And I think Red Bull has its challenges, but, and it's like an elitist mentality, but you know, and we, we, we've, we've shared that with clients sometimes on our business side because like Red Bull purposely priced itself premium. We said, yeah. we're a premium beverage or a premium brand. You can go get a three 16-ounce Monsters for the price you can get two 8-ounce Red Bulls. Right, and, and, and some people will do that and like more power to yeah. them, but you're right. It's yep. a different business model. Yeah, totally. And But if but if you're that high-performance level, you have to also get those high-performing level athletes, and then you create this thing where it's like every athlete wants to be that. They drop you like it's hot in your energy drink brand to go to Red Bull any day of the week. They oh, don't yeah. even care how much money they'd lose on a contract because it's just going to be worth it to be a Red Bull athlete. So, yeah, it's interesting what they've created on that for sure. Okay. So you're doing that. You get out of that. What ultimately led to your sort of uh, exit from that? My mid-20s crisis. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> what happened? That's what I No, that's what I call it. I mean, I, I got super burnt out. I got super mad at the corporate world. Like just kind of hit like, oh man, the, you know, the man's out there. Like I'm selling sugar water. And I think it wasn't like that boiled down. Like I think my theological, philosophical, like mental health was much more mature than that. But I just, I was doing like 85 flights a year, 130 Marriott nights. Like I was oh, just God. grinding like total road warrior. And so I just got burnt out on it, man. And, and what I, it was like, I, I was cross country skiing in Northern Wisconsin one we like New Year's Eve, we rented like a little hut and we're cross country skiing and with a couple of buddies. And I was like, man, I'm only here for the paycheck and the health insurance and the security it provides. And I'm scared to leave and go do something crazier because I'm, it's just not secure. Like it, it could be really stupid. And, um, and then I went back to my punk roots kind of in that exact moment. I was like, man, 16 year old version would punch me in the face. <laughs> Like 16 year old Ryan would punch me in the face. Like talking about insurance and security. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, what's wrong with you, dude? That's, you want to go change the world and you're going to talk like that? You like, you loser. Come on. Sell out. Washed up, sell out, terrible dude. Yeah. So it's like, (laughs) I love that though. I love that these punk roots that we have, like, and what, how that shaped us, you know, over those years, like pops up in these moments, these critical pivotal, pivotal moments in life and says, Yo, get it together. You oh, know? dude, don't, totally, don't be that. Totally. And it's funny, like, I stayed at my company, like, my corporate job that I just did a solo episode about. I stayed there for 14 months past when I initially planned to leave. Mm-hmm. But in that time, I made sure I'm like, okay, I'm going to lay the groundwork. I'm going to get my ducks in a row here. And so the day I got laid off, the very next day, I sent out the press release announcing my new company just to kind of stick it. Yeah. Um, because, and I got it picked up, so I knew it would show up in their media monitoring. So it's yeah. like, wow, he, did he do this in one day? Or I think we've been had. And it's like, yeah, you, know, you were really sticking it to the man then. Dude, yeah, you gotta, sometimes you gotta stick your thumb in the eye. 
uh-huh. of the machine. I mean, that's yep. what, what can I say? Totally. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah. So, so kind of hit that point. So I came, I'd come to, I'd moved from Milwaukee to LA to Chicago to Des Moines to Denver to Chicago, kind of Cincinnati, but not really back to Chicago all in the few years I was at Red Bull. Good um, Lord. So it was like a lot of, you know, moving, doing different things. It's cool. Learned a lot and, and grew a lot. And so I came, I loved Colorado when I was out here. And so I came back out. I said, okay, I'm going to quit Red Bull in September. I gave him a two month notice. I was like terrified the day I did it. Cause I thought I was going to get fired on the spot, but uh-huh. I was like, part of the reason I was so burnt out was cause they had a hard time finding the right people that were high enough caliber for them. And so you, you ended up with open, open positions for like six to eight, six to 12 months and people would end up doing dual roles. And so there was a point yeah. that I have like three people's jobs because I'd gotten promoted, but they hadn't backfilled me and they all stack up. So I was like, you know, I'm going to give you give me a two, two month notice. They have time to prepare. That's the right thing to do. So September I left, I came out to Colorado and did like a two and a half month sabbatical. What year was this? Like, this is 2015. Okay. Yeah. September, 2015. Um, so I was like, you know, stay with a friend in Denver and then half the nights of the week and the other half the nights of the week I was out mountain biking, camping in my Subaru somewhere in Colorado or New Mexico or something. Nice. And, um, yeah, so that was, that was awesome. It was a really good season. Then I went over to Eastern Europe, uh, and was in Germany, Finland, Moldova, Ukraine, and, um, Albania, um, kind of consulting on some businesses, missions, social enterprise projects. And for me, it was like a vision trip trying to discern like, okay, do I want to actually go overseas and go do this right now? For them, it was uh, free consulting, essentially. Right. And um, so I came back and like what they wanted me to do, again, punk rockers here somewhat, like what they wanted me to do and what I felt like they needed from a strategic side just weren't matching up. And I'm like, just wasn't willing to, you know, and, and part of the punk rock for me that comes from and what we do in a little bit comes from saying, look, the nonprofit world is a little broken. It's not fiscally self-sustaining. Um, it doesn't operate as efficiently as it can. If we operate it better, we can serve more people, you know? So I, I went through this kind of life crisis in my early twenties where I was like, look, I've been shaped by punk rock, which is all about brotherhood and community and social justice and picking up the person next to you. I've been shaped by a business degree and and we'll go back here. Those are the positives of punk rock. The negatives of punk rock are like a lot of drug abuse and different things. You go to shows and festivals and it's like tons of drugs, like, uh, a lot of alcoholism, you know, like there are some downsides to that culture in, oh, yeah. in a sense. Right. Well, um, and, and Ryan, like one of the things that bothered me for a long time was because I liked punk rock, I thought I had to hate every other kind of music. Yeah. And like once I got into my thirties, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, why, yeah. why do I automatically you just chip on your shoulder? Yeah, yeah, dude, totally. And like just this like really snotty attitude about mm-hmm. everything else. And when, when I realized I'm like, Oh, it's exhausting hating everything. Yep. And so, like, I opened Just my music. pissed off all the time. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> so, like, I, I opened it up and I started listening to, like, the stuff my wife was into. And now, like, I love everything. Like, yeah. punk's where my heart is. But, like, I love everything. Like, we're listening to old country. Like, you, you're as likely to hear Patsy Cline here as you are hearing, like, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen or, like, The Shins or whatever. You know, yeah. like... Yeah. It just whatever it is, just give it to me. Like I'll find a spot for it on the patio. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're I'm the same boat now. Like I'm kind of all over. It. And you know, I really enjoyed the screamo hardcore scene. Like we just did yeah. a uh, one on our podcast. We just an episode with the guy that runs A and R for uh, Tooth and Nail Records. Oh, and, nice. Um, that was a cool episode. So all those bands, like too. So I, I kind of, if I want to mindlessly listen to something, I'll kind of default to that more mm-hmm. than I will punk rock is punk rock i feel like takes a little more intentionality and thought from me and uh yeah anyways it's it's interesting how we all so i was like okay so punk rock shaped me good bad business degree has has taught me like you know responsibility and and financial responsibility and all these things but then you got this business side that's like greed corporate greed and making money and like knocking other people down to raise yourself up and it's like, man that that part doesn't fit and then i i play ultimate frisbee i, I played in college for marquette's team i coach high school now and like a, it's been a big part of my life but ultimate doesn't have any referees so it's a sport totally defined on we're not gonna have a referee there's a rule system baked in and the integrity of the game which is called spirit of the game is more important and honesty is more important than winning so you're like, and you'll see massive and like, even in the pro leagues that they've decided to have referees, a player can overrule a ref. If like, so, so if I go to catch it and I actually don't catch it, it hits the ground first and the ref calls it up. There's an overrule opportunity where the player can say, actually, I did drop it. You're wrong. And, and integrity can outplay and it. And it happens all the time. 
Dude, what? It's super cool. I like. I know nothing about ultimate, but that's like a utopian sport. It's it's almost like it's incredible. It, yeah. It's it's like the way golf is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but like everyone cheats at golf because yeah. like you're you're kind of out there by yourself and. You know, if you're not keeping score, if you're not playing in a tournament or something, you're just kind of hitting the ball around. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, in a team sport like this and, you know, a game with some precision and some very specific rules. Yeah. um, I could see where that would unravel. And I imagine the people who are are less than call it less than honest don't last long in any league, do they? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and, you know, like the the high level. I mean, you got a few college teams, a few club teams that have a bad M.O. Like it is traditionally frowned upon to you know how nfl player will catch a touchdown and they'll spike the touchdown mm-hmm. traditionally to spike a disc after scoring has been frowned upon in the community like right. yeah toss the disc down high five the person next to you that's playing d on you encourage them and go now you could watch the pro leagues and now it's all highlights of guys like spiking the disc into the ground and they've got to replace it because it bent and stuff and trying to coach high school and teach kids like hey like we used to have a rule like 10 push-ups if you spike the disc or something like that sure and, yeah and occasionally I jokingly spike it because I'd like, you know, sky some, like jump over some kid and mess with them. Like one of our better players and I'd spike it on them or something to mess with them and they'd make me do push ups. But that's like, that was like the fun tongue in cheek to teach them. Yeah. But you know, you're, 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 there, there's some uh, other purpose to what you're doing there as yeah. the coach. I get it. Totally. Yeah. So, but yeah, dude, it's like, a, I mean, again, drawn to that kind of from a punk rock roots. Like, look, integrity is going to rise up over everything else the people around you matter more than anybody else. And, and let's do something about that. And let's, let's, let's like have something like to value deeper in a okay. sense. Okay. So I want to go back to something because I manage this from the corporate side. You mentioned that the nonprofit model in a lot of ways is broken. Yeah. And I agree with you because I, I managed our charitable giving portfolio. So I had, oh, wow. okay. Yeah, like, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I had more than like, like punk rock mixed with like investment banker. Now, man, you are like scum of the earth seller. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, man, anytime I got to tell a nonprofit that we were giving them some money, like that was the yeah. best part of my job. Oh, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I'm uh, just messing with you. It's I know. Cool. <laughs> um, but I would get pitches, like literally dozens of pitches a week from yep. people. And the nonprofit model is traditionally like just kind of hat in hand. Here's the important work we're doing. Here's the underserved people we're doing. And I'm like, you guys are not coming correct with your value proposition here. And the ones that treated themselves like a business that, that had some understanding of where the screw turns for me on a corporate side where I can actually get this approved. Yeah. Were the ones who were most successful and ones who would stick around. The, The ones that were just sort of like trying to. I don't know, like play up the pathos of what they're doing, you yeah. know, uh, we're, we're almost never successful. And yeah. I would check up on them like a year later and then a lot of them would be gone. Yeah. And so I, you yeah. noticed that from your side, can you say more about like why it's broken beyond kind of my take on it? Yeah. So our organization feast over famine that I started, uh, started in 2016, um, kind of out of that where my story left off for the most part. Um, so we exist to help servant-hearted organizations to scale effectively and navigate the tension where mission and where profit collide. That's our mission statement. And our vision is basically to see as much of the global marketplace be eaten up by social entrepreneurs, social impact companies, or nonprofits that have an earned income stream of some sort. So we say, look, there's trillions of dollars out there being good services traded around, like Tom's shoes as like the famous example, good, bad, not bad, whatever. We won't get into that. But like, they're saying, I'm going to go take a slice of the shoe market and I'm going to take that up. I'm not going to ask John's company for donations, uh, but I'm going to just take a cut of that profits and then give shoes to Africa. So now instead of like part of what's broken in the nonprofit model is kind of two things. And I'm going to say all this knowing that like, it's not as black and white as I'm making it, you know, like it's, it's definitely a great thing, but you traditionally have a lot of nonprofits that do the same thing. You know, you might have 500 nonprofits and 50 issues. And part of that is like a chip on the shoulder kind of thing that says like, Oh, well they're not doing it as good or they're missing it here. And I'm going to go spin off and do my own, or I'm just going to do something like there's not as this collaboration but not as much. So there's just kind of some waste there. Dude, and what's funny hearing you say that is, so I ran this thing called Mile High 100 for a little while, 
where it was basically uh, modeled after a hundred men who give a damn, hundred women who care. Like yeah. you ever heard of that model? Everyone brings their. That yeah, sounds really familiar to me, actually. So basically, okay. you get a hundred people together. They all promise to bring a hundred bucks. You have, mm-hmm. It's like Shark Tank. You have three nonprofits come and pitch. You take a vote. Yeah. Who whoever earns the most votes, like everyone yeah. agrees to cut a check to that organization. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So we ran that, and to your point. There were so many just in the Denver area about hunger, like hunger alone, right? And you go, how many different organizations do we need doing this? Yeah. And why? Like, what? how are you different from each other? And, you know, like we can niggle over some of the details and some of the exact mission, but essentially you're trying to get hungry people some food. Yeah. Um, And you're cutting deals with food banks and stuff like that and, you know, buying remaindered food and all that. But yeah, I mean, to your point, it's like, why do we need so many different groups doing the exact right. same thing? That's weird. Right. Yeah. And I think competition's good, just like the energy drink market, right? Like, essentially, if you're like, why are there so many energy drinks? Why can't there just be Red Bull and they all go together and they spend more money and make the best energy drink? Yeah, but if there's not competition, it doesn't press you to be better. So there's a balance there. But I think there's also just some, some ways to be trimmed in the nonprofit world that way or some collaboration positively that needs to happen. So what you get out of that, though, you have this finite pool of money between corporate donors and foundations and grants and the traditional ways you go get that money as a nonprofit. And you have a growing every day in Colorado. There's like five something new nonprofits getting approved every day in Colorado alone (laughs) or something like that. Right. So you have a growing number of people that need money for this stuff and a finite pool of it. That's yeah, there's new people adding to it, but then there's more money going out. I mean, endowments, whatever, like it's a finite pool. It's not the way that. It's not the same thing as the global marketplace. So so our heart is to say, you know, there's this space in the middle of for-profit, non-profit where you can run a business model, you can run it well, you can serve people through it. And, and there's a few versions of that. You know, there's like the non-profit that just wants to, you know, sell a, uh, a journal that is part of what they do. You know, they do uh, education training for girls in middle school and they want to do like a career journal. And that's going to be, you know, 10% of their budget comes from that. Awesome. That's way better than not. And then there's your 360 approach, like a farm in Africa. Okay. We're going to buy a farm. We're going to employ a hundred people. We're going to subsidize a million meals for 10 years out of the profits. You know, we're going to employ those hundred people and that's going to cycle back in. And then we're going to use the profits to build wells and do all this stuff. Like that's your perfect 360 approach to this stuff. But then there's the for-profit company that says, look, we want to run, or we already have a baller, awesome for-profit company. that's profitable. Let's let's just take a percentage of our profits and give them away completely. You know, like a, a solar thermal heating company out of Florida that wants to give away 5% of its gross profit in product every year to disaster relief or something. Are you talking about like B Corps essentially, or is that something different? Uh, no, like B Corp. Yeah. Yes. And no, I am, I, I am entity agnostic. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably the best way to say it. Like, yeah. I think the B Corp can be good in some situations. What we basically do is if, if a, if we're working with a client who's looking to bring on investment or something, we will kind of work with them and a legal team to say, Hey, what's best here? You know, you're you're a project in Ukraine. You've got an investor in Australia and an investor in the U S and you're part of a 501 C three international NGO that you get your salary from. This is messy. And Ukraine geopolitically is like not a place that I want to have an investment in a company headquartered there necessarily. (laughs) Right. And if it's headquartered there, they're going to take a lot more taxes and things. But if it's not, they're going to bribe you on some other things. So like, how do we navigate this mess? So I think like B Corp's the easy thing to say, oh, that's a B Corp. But it's it's really, really, and we just did a podcast episode this week, actually, with an international like business for transformation law guy that we get really nerdy on some of that stuff. Sure. Well, and I mean, it's it's like anything else. So I used to work in oil and gas, which by the way, again, punk rock ethos here. Great, right? <laughs> um, but uh it's funny because like something like that, you know, B Corp or whether you're talking about oil and gas development, from the outside looking in, you go, Okay, well this is the answer. I get this. But the deeper you get into anything, the more complicated it gets. Like right. I yeah. worked in that business for more than a decade and the more that I learned about the way we actually get, you know, oil and natural gas out of the ground, yeah. it's a miracle. Like it's an absolute miracle and it is so complicated. So like I, I hear crazy. you on, on nerding out uh, about, you know, how, how do yeah. we navigate this? What kind of organization do we have? And I think that's why it's important to be industry agnostic or 
Yeah, what did you say? Agnostic? Organization uh, agnostic. Ent- entity agnostic. Entity yeah. agnostic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's importance to it. Um, you see my whiteboard behind me. We're, we're planning some, like, it, we're planning some entity structure out for our organization because of the same issue. You know, if we are swapping equity on a project or running an accelerator model or doing a VC fund, which are all things that we're, we're talking about doing as the next natural step for us, the entities are complicated, you know? So, one thing I do want to highlight, though, is like being a traditional 501c3 nonprofit that's totally funded by donations and grants and individual donors and philanthropy and all that, that is not a bad thing. What I'm saying is there are a lot of those that could make a shift. Like <laughs> you, you hate, there are a lot of businesses on one side of the spectrum that can come middle and a lot of nonprofits that can come to the middle. But then there's some businesses that it's like, they're just banging their head against the wall trying to figure out how to make the profit model thing work. And it's like, no, just just give some of your profits away. You don't have to make it perfectly integrated <laughs> right. in your model. Like it just doesn't make sense, and that's okay. And there's some nonprofits that it it it's just you're really good at providing meals to these people and hook up in a different way. And I really like what you're we're doing with corporate social responsibility because I feel like that's where you marry the two. When you find the traditional nonprofit that's like a, an earned income stream, a, a business model just doesn't work for them. You have the massive corporation that from a tax standpoint has to give and they want it for the PR reasons or, or the good reasons or whatever reason, like those two can kind of arch over the top and marry each other and let everything else play out in the middle. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we had our flagship organizations that we would donate to and we'd give them a ton of time and volunteer hours. And you know, it like, it didn't really even align with our mission, but it's what our folks ended up being passionate about. And so, you know, you're right. It it worked really, really well. And I think that partnership is ongoing. I haven't checked up on it in a while because, I mean, I don't especially care. I (laughs) hope they are for the sake of the nonprofit. But, yeah, I I think you're right. There's there's more than one model here that will work. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you guys guys found success uh, in what you're doing in sort of helping people navigate this and understand this? And would you say that's kind of your role here? Yeah. The first two years of our organization – so really like the bread and butter organization, how we make money is we're a consulting company essentially. So we're doing a hybrid model of strategic planning mixed with operational scaling, mixed with executive coaching. And we're helping organizations and businesses and stuff like discern like where they've been, where they're headed, where they're going, why they're going there, how they're going to get there. What's the financial model intricacies of a 10 year profit and loss projection? What's the org chart mapping, like 10 years from now, what's the org chart going to look like and how do we reverse engineer it and which position is going to hire when and what's the compensation models and what's the sales and marketing strategy that supplements that. Like like my background has allowed us to kind of help in each one of those areas very specifically. Um, So we're taking a really holistic approach, like soup to nuts, like to help people with that. Dude, and that like that's crazy to me because that's like what you hire – you know, like, have you ever heard of Gap Incorporated or like Accenture does stuff like this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Like management consulting. Right. Essentially like, yeah. Wait, I, and so I, I think that part surprises me a little bit because, you know, we're talking about nonprofits here and, and we're talking about social enterprise kinds of things. Yet yep. there's not an organization out there that wouldn't benefit from streamlining and understanding, like getting their operations totally uh, just, just totally dialed in because I think that gets overlooked because very few people are actually trained in that. Like you start a nonprofit where you're trying to feed people. What do you know about creating an org chart? Right. Totally. And what, what, how we failed as a society is we've told whether you're a paint, you own a painting company or you are a social worker that's seen the brokenness in the education system and is wanting to go out and do something about it. Either one of those, we've told people they need to be a superhero in every way. Oh my gosh. Well, if you want to go start a nonprofit and do that, you need to be a CFO and you need to be a COO and you need to know how to hire people and you need to be the best manager. No, that's like total BS. That's like that. that that's, doesn't... A fa- that's a fallacy, bro. Like totally. But, but that's what we've told people. We've told the painting company like, Hey, when you get to 200, 300 K revenue, like you should know how to scale that thing. And it's like, no, go paint houses really, really well. This is like <laughs> every good CEO in the world knows that they should not be the smartest person in their organization. They should surround themselves with the best experts that are most relevant and most passionate about what they're doing. And if you're a small business owner or a small nonprofit or a social enterprise or somewhere in between, you should do the same thing. And so that's the role we've tried to play is instead of like from the beginning, instead of saying you've got to individually hire all those, like let us come alongside you and and help with all that stuff and then apply the partners or team members or whatever. I'm struck by something, which is I'm a shop of one, right? It's just me. 
but I'll talk to other kind of solopreneurs and they're like, wait, you have an accountant? And I go, of course I have an accountant. Why don't yeah. you have an accountant? I don't I know nothing about accounting, nor do I have the desire to learn tax law. Yeah. So like I just, I pay someone to do it and I'm happier totally. for it because it takes me less time. Ultimately, I'm not stepping over a dollar to pick up a dime. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like, you know, I, I pay money to my accountant, but that time has value to me and yeah. I can focus my attention on better high dollar activities for what I'm yeah. doing. Yeah. When you go to coach the coaching side of things, like, which is woven throughout it, like we're, our heads are down. We're in it. We have a to-do list that at the very bottom of it is like five or 10 things that are really push our organization forward strategically, whether it's this new marketing idea, this thing. And it's, it's the stuff that you never get to because everything's on fire all day long, <laughs> you know? Yes. Right. Like how many people out there are like, man, I've always wanted to start a podcast and talk about this because I think it'll change people's lives. Go start that podcast. Right. Yeah. But I get it that we, we get stuck in our day to day. We can't pull our heads out. So part of our role we view is like coming alongside individuals and saying like, let's help pull your head out and let's craft this dream. And let's not leave you with like a lot of strategy consultants in the past. And even still, they will like walk you through their 15 fancy whiteboard exercises and then drop it into a PDF model that came out of some book that they're certified in. And then they'll hand that to you and say, Oh, here's your PDF. Like now go do this. And you're like, dude, I don't have the skill or the time to implement this. So it ends up back at the bottom of your to-do list and you're out five or 10 or 15 or $30,000 because that's just a broken model. So what we said is like, we're, we're never going to do that. We're going to actually come alongside John and say, yeah, John, that'd be cool if you built out this business model. What's the profit margin of it? What would you charge? Um, how much of X widget or X dollar thing do you have to sell to hit this? And when you get to that amount, how many people are you going to need on your team? So you don't crush under it. And do those numbers match up? And if they don't, then let's massage it out until we fix it. Oh, by the way, if you're going to do that, you need a sales and marketing strategy. So are you going to do that? What's your conversion ratio? John, you got to go talk to 500. So we start to piece all these little pieces together. And now we're, we don't just say, oh, we're going to be a $10 million company in 10 years. We say we're going to be a $10 million company in 10 years. And every single moment until then, we've got lined out. And of course, stuff's going to change. But we're really intricately getting involved in that. Dude, it's so funny too. We had one of those big like consulting companies come to my corporation. Yeah. And we did all those whiteboard exercises and they were endless, like just endless, like the big sheets of paper. Everyone yeah. goes around, write something on them, and then you have to go around and star the ones you like and all that. And I remember thinking, is this leading anywhere? Yeah. And I felt like it never did. But at one point, I got so sick of it. I went up to one of the facilitators. I go, do you guys realize you're just teaching us semiotics here? Like, this is reheated grad school stuff. Um, yeah. Like, this this is Roland Bart. This is Derrida. This is um, Kenneth Burke. And yeah. so, like, just drawing on my time in grad school. And they're like, huh, that's interesting. I never heard that. I go, oh, my God, you don't even understand your own, like, yeah. philosophical foundation. You've reheated everything that I learned in grad school. Yeah. Put a fancy name on it. And I've sold it to this company for, and, and the size of this company and the amount of people that went through this thing, Yeah, uh, I, it, it had to be millions of dollars a year. Yeah. So we have intentionally said we don't want to play in the corporate space. Like if, if you sent a corporate client to me tomorrow and they were on board and they want to work with us, great. I like the sales cycle and the competitive side of that. Like, like I don't even, I've just decided we don't even want to play in it. Like I don't want to deal with the 18 to 24 month sales cycle of like, you know, 15 conversations with like our best thing is I chat to a dude in Tajikistan who's super passionate about X project yeah. and knows that knows people there really well and has a heart to serve them. And there's no corporate red tape. There's nothing there. And we go make it happen. God, and, that's awesome. and then it's flourishing, you know, or a project in Africa. That's like, I mean, whatever it is, like I just enjoy. And again, we'll circle back to punk rock here. Like punk rock is like, go crush it. Like you have an idea, go make it happen. Screw the red tape, blast through doors, kick them in, do whatever you got to do and punch whoever in the face that you need to, to get out of your way and make it happen. And, and I say that tongue in cheek, but it's kind of the point of it. And so, yeah, so we've just kind of strategically said, that's the space we're going to play in dude. And like, that is such an underserved space. Like if, mm -hmm. if you are that person who's kind of DIY, like build your own scene, build your own community. Like we're, we're just doing this from the ground up because I can't yeah. not do it. Right. There's not a lot of people with expertise out there seeking mm -hmm. to help you. Yeah. And because so you can't pay them enough to make it worth it for them. No, essentially. Right. Like it, it, Essentially. Yes. Because you know, uh, if you remember the social network movie, 
It's like you never see a yeah. guy, you know, standing with a photo, you know, with 14 trout. Yeah. He's standing there with, you know, a 2,000 pound marlin or whatever, whatever they said, yeah. whatever dumb thing. So a lot of like management consulting, you need to get that high dollar kind of thing to yeah. make sure all these people are fed. You guys are running lean and mean. Yeah. Which I I mean that's that's right after my own heart. One of the things I always say, I'm like, look, you can hire a, a traditional PR agency or someone who's gonna come in and do like presentation training for you, but I'm nimble, like you you're just getting me, so I have no overhead, number one. Yeah. And number two, you're only dealing with me, okay? You're not yeah. I'm, you're not getting handed off to some twenty four year old account executive. Yeah. Exactly. And what's funny is now I'm gonna kind of flip the switch on this a little bit, but like we have we also charge, so we charge less than Accenture, Deloitte, and all that because of everything you just said. The, I mean, it's just they charge like eight hundred dollars an hour, and it's like baked in, and it's Jeez. like, but but it's eight hundred. It's it's not just eight hundred hours. It's eight hundred an hour for forty hours a week of somebody for six to nine months, and <laughs> yeah, it's messy, you know. So it's like the hourly rate doesn't really matter. Like we don't even play in that space, but it's like the. I mean, those are hundreds of thousands of dollar engagements, you know, and we're, we're diving in much less than that, much like you are. But what we are doing is we're also going to the nonprofit side of things and saying, look, there is this martyrdom, sacrificial approach that we've created in the nonprofit world that says, if you're going to go do, well, all over the world, if you're going to go do social good, then you make less money and that's just how it is. And what you end up having happen and what we've had happen is you traditionally do not end up with the best and brightest minds in their prime working on the biggest challenges our world faces, like hunger, addiction, homelessness, poverty, all those kinds of incarceration, all those kinds of things, right? Yeah. So you get bright minds when they're like 60 or 70 or 50 or retired and they're on a board and they have the time for that. But they, when they were like, I don't want to say the prime of our careers, but I mean like when you're an energetic 30-year-old, you know, those people are saying, look, I can make 40K doing working my butt off here. I can make 150K here and I can give half my salary. That's actually probably better. Go make 150K and give <laughs> half your salary away or invest it in cool social enterprise projects to get them capital to go instead of making only 40 or 50K. Because you, what happens is you see people in nonprofits all the time. They burn out in two or three years or they're miserable on that side. So it's just like that's messed up. So we said – we are going to probably lose opportunities to work with organizations, but we are going to charge way more than anybody else because we need to break the cycle to say, look, yeah, we are more expensive than some of the other nonprofit consultants, but I guarantee you when you hire us, and this isn't a sales pitch, I'm just talking about the model. When you hire us, you are getting every bit of my focus. You're not getting my focus because I'm excited about selling the deal. And then three months from now, I realize that I need to go make ends meet somehow else and it's a problem. Mm -hmm. And you see that all the time with the traditional nonprofit consulting world. We talk about management consulting over here being outrageous. And we talk about nonprofit martyrdom mentality over here being that like, we're trying to sit somewhere in the middle again to bring these two worlds together and have them collide a little bit better. I, I'm 100% with you. And in my business, I, I used to fret about when I would like put a price tag on a project for a client Yeah, and it, like I would, I, my guts would churn just thinking about it. But at some point I'm like, you know what? Like I'm gonna make this worth it because it's America. You get what you pay for, yeah. and and your your sort of instinct is to underbid yourself at first because it's like, well, I don't know if they can afford that, and it's like, well, if they can't afford it, then screw them. I believe in myself. I believe in the value that I'm bringing. Yeah. I know that I'm going to deliver for you, and I'm going to over deliver for you. So, yeah. in order to do that, here's the rate, but here's yeah. what you're getting for it. So you make the value yeah. proposition strong that way. Yeah, you do. Like we just take a collaborative approach. We're like, look, most of our engagements are between twenty five hundred and thirty k. Like, and I tell this to people kind of upfront when they want to work with us. I say, look, that's our engagements. Like, it seems like we're aligned in all these ways. So, what is your budget range? When I tell you twenty five hundred to thirty k, and they say, you know, I don't know, somewhere between five and fifteen, probably. Like, cool. I'll bring you an option that's five, a ten, and a fifteen, and we'll talk about the value of each one, and you can discern what that value is to you. And that's an advice to anybody listening that's kind of getting into that model or anybody that's pricing a product or, you know, like, yeah. like this whole, I don't know. We, we act like it has to be smoke and mirrors to try to convince someone the value of something. And I think if we're just upfront and honest about stuff on the front end, it's better. Again, man, we got like a business degree from punk rock and we don't even realize it. Right. <laughs> like, like cut the BS, just say it like it is. 
and serve people well and care about the person next to you and things probably are going to work out well. Right. Respect them enough to be forthright with them every step of the way. Totally. And so like, here's why that's not going to work. I I tell that to, to clients all the time. And here's what I say though. I'm like, look, at the end of the day, this, this is not my thing. This is yeah. your thing. Okay. So I'm here to make recommendations. You're here to make decisions. I'm telling you this because I think my recommendations are strong and I think I'm right. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you got to live with this. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm not going to give you anything less than honest counsel at any step of the, of the process. Yeah. Which is huge, you know? And I think people, I think it's refreshing. Like the worst thing is when someone hires you, John, and then they, you're like, oh man, this dude's a total jerk to his employees. I don't really want to tell him that because I got to feed my family and I don't want to lose this client, you know? Yeah. But like, you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. I'm, <laughs> we've all been there, right? Oh yeah. But having what it takes to like, just be honest and respectful, but to share that you got to call it like it is sometimes. And I think that's refreshing and people get it because everyone's too, like, it's a, it's either people are like too harsh to the dad that's like screaming at their kids or they're so soft that like everybody around them is miserable, miserable. Cause they can't, they're avoiding conflict all the time. Again. I, I mean, this has come up again and again, you're trying to find that happy medium. You're trying to thread the needle mm-hmm. and no, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Okay. You mentioned when you were with Red Bull, you were doing like what? 80 flights a year, uh, yeah, 130 Marinites, Marriott nights. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds like you're doing projects all over the world. Now, prior to the pandemic, did you find yourself back on the road or have you managed to find a happy medium where you're on the road a bit, uh, but you're, you've got time to yourself and time at home? Yeah. Happy medium for sure. Yeah. And that's been intentional. Like I want, we have a 14 month old, like I want him to see his dad working hard. I want him to see his dad serving people and exhausting himself to serve other people in some way. And I want him to connect those dots and I want him to know that I took a break and held him for 15 minutes and made a cup of coffee amidst it, you know? Yeah. And that's a really tough balance, dude. Like I feel like I'm either a horrible dad, a horrible business person, or I'm, I'm horribly fat any week because I didn't <laughs> exercise or I didn't get enough time with him. What I say, and we say this with our clients all the time, like we, as a society and a culture, we try to look at things as black and white as possible because we don't want to try hard to critically think. And I, and you see that in like bipartisan politics for sure. I'm not wanting to go there. I'm just saying like this black and white thing's a problem. Life is gray and life is full of tension and it's messy and you just got to navigate that. And and what that means for me in that is, yeah, I might have to travel one week. And if I do, then I've got to make the sacrifice in that messy gray tension to say, you know what? We might not bring on that next client because I'm not out selling the week after, but I'm going to go on a hike with the family for a full day on a Wednesday because that's the right thing to do. So I think if we just, if we just do the hard work of living in the gray, messy tension, sometimes it actually helps out. And that's kind of what we've done with travel. Absolutely. And being present in whatever you're doing, like, okay, I got to go travel this week. I'm going to make sure I get my stuff done that week. And so like yesterday, uh, so my daughter didn't have childcare coverage. It was just me. So like I took her to the park and we were just together and I go, you know what? I'm going to not be on my phone. I'm going to try and not have one foot in each pool here. Yeah. And like that is, that's really, really hard to do and really hard to turn off. But when you can achieve it, when I recognize it as a choice, like people always ask me about entrepreneurship and it's like, look, I'm never done. Okay. Like like, I'm never finished. Like there's never sort of where I go. Okay. Yes. Good. Everything's done. Yeah. There's just times when I choose not to do it. Yep. And, and once I recognize that as a choice, it makes more sense. Yeah, that's gold. You just have to choose not to do it. And it comes down to prioritizing it. And it's it's crazy to think, yeah, that's not going to get done. And it's crazy when you have clients and you have to discern that. Oh, God. Like, you have to you have to discern. I, I remember being at Red Bull and I had like 40 or 50 distributors that were relying on me in some capacity <laughs> oh, at one time. And I literally had to decide who wasn't important every day. Oh. 450 emails a day for a season. And I just, at the end of the day, had to say, you're important and you're not. And it wasn't that I was really saying that, but, but I was either going to kill myself in the process or I had to do that. And, mm-hmm. and I think what I tried to do differently was not always say that this one's not important. Because I think if you're the boss out there that has the employee that always ends up at the bottom of the list, you're like, not important, not important, not important, not important. Like, that's going to destroy culture. Oh, you yeah. do that with your wife or your kids. Like, if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing that with your wife right now, like, 
that's bad, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, the foot in one door, one in the other, man, that's so hard. And I actually have to like, I don't have the self-discipline most of the time to do that. Well, like, like even last night, my wife was like, can you put the phone down and just like, like, I wanted to make a couple phone calls because we're building a garage. I was like, I'm going to make these couple calls and hold him. And she's like, I think he'd really like to hang out with you. And I'm like, <laughs> you're not supposed to be convicting me right now. I don't want to hear that. But it's what I needed to hear, you know? Yeah. So I think it's just, it's tough, man. But it's gray and we get there, right? It's it's messy. But the sooner you forgive yourself and the more you can be kind to yourself, which I'm working yeah. on, it's yeah. co- it's coming more and more with age. Um, yeah. And my, my negative self-talk is less frequent and less harsh than it used to be. Man, it's it, listen to some old school like PMA hardcore. <laughs> I, I, hey, you know what? That's not unusual for me in a mm-hmm. day. You know, I'll probably go get in my car and listen to Comeback Kid on the way to wherever I'm going. Dude, Wake the Dead Man. Yeah, one of my that, favorite that songs. Whole record. Uh, it is perfect. Mm-hmm. It is a perfect song. It yes, with with the gang vocals and just the anthemic chorus. Like I yeah. love that song so much. I want to like punch a hole in the wall every time I hear it. Oh. I wish there was a wall in my house that I could punch a hole in when I'm jazzed about music, but not actually mad. And it was okay. Totally. <laughs> we need one of those. <laughs> that, that song makes me sad that it didn't exist when I was a competitive swimmer. Because oh, yeah. like I would have listened to that before every race. That would have been yeah. just flawless. I think we talk about this. Strike Anywhere has been that for me. Like yeah. Strike Anywhere and From Autumn to Ashes are the two bands that like if I have a mountain bike race or I'm like riding or something or just need to get jazzed about Frisbee or basketball game, whatever it is that I'm going to do, like I will just put that on. And it is like I mean, the energy you take from like picking up change in a mosh pit kind of dance feel <laughs> yeah. like whatever that, that music does inside of you translates so perfectly to like a very high level athlete, like just like when you're in the zone and you don't even care, like it, it translates so perfectly. Yeah. When you feel invincible. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. Well, Ryan Mahaffey, this was an enormous pleasure. This is the time on the show when we do plugs. So plug anything you like, you've got your podcast, you've got your business, anything at all, man, the floor is yours. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Go check out what we're doing. We'd love to help however we can. We're, we sit in that social enterprise place. So if you know a project around the world, whatever, we'd love to talk to them. We'd love to help them. Traditional nonprofit for profit, somewhere in between, um, we'd love to talk. We're building up the investing side of things. We just recognize there's a need for capital for these projects. And there's a lot of, uh, people that don't want to do traditional nonprofit fundraising giving, but are, have a business background. So if that's you and you say, man, I would love to give or invest in some way, tax deductible, not in a business project. Talk to us. We're mobilizing some capital in that space and getting some projects around the world going. Um, and yeah, we have a podcast. So it's the Feast Over Famine podcast. We're on all the spots. We're talking about these kinds of projects, interviewing founders and CEOs and different people that are experts in the area. It's super fun. Um, so go check that out. And uh, yeah, man. Give me the website. Me on. You, you never said the website. I mean, I just assume everyone's on Google. www.feastoverfamine.org. Okay. Well, and I put this in the show notes. So if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or any of a billion other podcatchers, you can find it there, as well as at the homepage, johnofalltrades.us. I'll make sure to link to all of that. Ryan, dude, uh, we need to get together more often because I could talk to you for a month of Sundays. And I think think what you're doing is really, really cool work. And I, I wish you continued success. Yeah. Thanks, man. Same to you. Thanks for having me on. And that'll do it for episode 264 of the John of All Trades podcast with Ryan Mahaffey, CEO of Feast Over Famine. What a great dude, huh? You want to get involved and make a difference, find out more about Feast Over Famine. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Ryan is just an amazing guy. I wish him all the success in the world. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Training, content, engagement, and podcasting. You need your organization telling its story in a better, more nuanced, and more robust way, hit me up. I can help you do that. I produce three other podcasts in addition to this show. They're all great. If you have an idea for a show, I'd love to help you get it going. So hit me up, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. Email is J-O-N at deftcom dot U-S. Our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do it better. You're building a website, doing some social media marketing, online advertising, building a campaign, trying to reach people on the platforms where they are. They'll help you get the message right, but they'll also ensure that it's 
being seen by the people who need to see it most. The number four, C-E-G-R-E.E-S. Follow me on social. The handle is J-O-H-Pod across platforms. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Speaking of, we got a brand new one coming for you next week. It's great. Another person didn't work well for other people. Person after my own heart. Cannot wait to bring it to you, so stay tuned to those social channels. We'll see you then. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.